As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey and unlike Manchester United, we are focusing on the Champions League. Joining me on this episode is your friend and mine, a man who would never confuse the cities of Budapest and Bucharest, Taylor Rockwell. I mean, a double shot in the introduction. That's how we're starting. All right, sir. It's going to be a contentious episode. Yes, Manchester United are incompetent, and I am incompetent when it comes to knowing which cities go with which countries. I knew we were in Romania. I went Budapest, and I apologized. It should have been, or I apologize now, should have been Bucharest. My mistake. It's okay. It's okay. And I apologize for the double shot in the intro there. I realized that was pretty a pretty rough way to come in there. No, it's fine. I love MK Dance. It's great. Okay, it is going to be one of those episodes. <laughs> all right, all right. Anyway, joining Taylor and I to talk Champions League is a man who would never confuse tactics with Tic Tacs, and he's a breath of, a breath of fresh air in both regards. It's Joe Lowry. See, that was much nicer for Joe. That was brilliant, and I just like how, how this episode's already shaping up, because I think, Taylor, you're going to get all the hard questions from Ryan, and I'm going to get all the softballs lobbed underhand my direction. Well played, guys. Okay, yeah, so opening questions. Joe, what did you have for breakfast? And Taylor, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> oh, I had, a, I had a granola bar. Now, Taylor, over to you. 42? Is that the answer? <laughs> it's either 42 or 47. I can never remember which one it is from, uh, mm. from Douglas Adams. See me after class, Rock. Okay. See me after right. class. Do either of you anyway, know what I'm talking about? No, nope. read a book. Uh, yeah, the the space one. What's it called? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I do know that yeah. book. Well, I haven't read one. it, but I know yes. it. Uh, they ask a supercomputer, the like the world's largest, the universe's largest supercomputer, what the answer is to life, the universe, and everything. And after several centuries of calculations, it returns an answer of, I believe, forty-two or forty-seven. I can't remember which one. So they made a, mo- a movie of that, didn't they? In the end, did you watch the movie? I did. And I watched the miniseries. The miniseries, uh, oh. I think a little more fun because it's a little more Douglas Adams-esque, but then most F is great. So it balances out. Very nice. And I has my familial that. connection of sorts, Sam Rockwell in there. And it's, it's got the guy from The Office, Martin Freeman's in it as well. Right? Yeah, him too. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <sighs> yes, he and is. So there. what relation is Sam Rockwell? Is he a fourth cousin, fifth cousin? I've always been told that like all Rockwells are somehow related, but that feels like a... Uh, a bold claim from my family. I don't know. He's a Rockwell in there, so we'll go. He's like a yeah, third cousin. We're best friends. It's fine. <laughs> Any famous Lowry's you're related to, Joe? Not that I'm aware of, but man, apparently I need to, to do some digging and find some really, really external familial relationships just so I can really get on Taylor's level over here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, we're talking about the Champions League today. We're doing some more uh, uh, some previews of the games. We're talking about the ones that are happening next Wednesday. We've got Sevilla against Dortmund, and we also have Porto taking on Juventus. Now, compared to the games we spoke about in yesterday's episode, gents, which was Leipzig, Liverpool, and PSG, Barca, this lineup feels... Slightly less box office. Is that fair to say, Taylor? 
Yeah, I think so. It's definitely a few of like the hipsters picks. Somehow Juve always end up in there. I think just because Serie A for, for a while has not been like the most compelling or competitive league. This season is, is not quite that same way. But yeah, I, I think like Dortmund are, are always seen as like a second level to Bayern Munich. And I think Sevilla kind of the same to Real Madrid and Barcelona. I think you could continue that on down the line. So yeah, it's less blockbustery, but I think simultaneously these games are going to be absolutely fascinating. Maybe even more so than the ones we talked about yesterday yeah i think and you're right. back think, go on go on josh i was just going to say that i think even though these are sort of less box office and they, they feel a bit europa leaguey in some ways that i think this might be an, an even more compelling day of soccer than than the previous one joe i'm kind of i'm kind of with you on that ryan and, and taylor and i were talking right before you hopped on the recording ryan we were talking about how when you preview these games you do get into it you get excited about it and just because these teams aren't as big as as Leipzig and and Barcelona and PSG and all the teams we talked about yesterday, Liverpool as well, that doesn't mean that I'm any less excited about the games. If anything, I'm I'm more excited for these games just because I had I had the chance to dig into all these teams. Right. It might also be that um, that maybe the fixtures yesterday felt bad that there wasn't as much star power for for these games, and that's maybe why Neymar won't be playing in those games anymore. Oh, yeah. So he, um, sh- shock horror, Neymar, we have an injury update from yesterday, don't we? We do indeed. Uh, after we recorded, I guess the, uh, Coupe de France game happened between PSG and, oh boy, Can? Khan. It's Khan, not Can. Khan. James Khan. There James is James Khan. Uh, Scott Khan FC. Uh, uh, PSG won 1-0, but they lost to Neymar. He had an adductor injury, ADD, not abductor, adductor injury, and will miss the, at the very least, the entirety of the Barcelona clash. So no Neymar for PSG against Barcelona, which means, as I tweeted, either Pochettino is going to change formation or more likely Pablo Sarabia will be starting. Do you think people will notice if I do my adductor joke again today? I, I don't think they will, and I think they'd appreciate it. For those who missed it yesterday, <laughs> let's have it, Ryan. Let's put it in the queue. Ah, uh, go back and listen to yesterday. <laughs> Give us another listen. Why don't you do that? <laughs> I like that better. Seville versus Dortmund. Mm-hmm. Why don't we get started with, start with that one? Uh, which of you gentlemen, you very fine gentlemen, is going to be taking out Liga side here, Seville? I have La Liga Giants. Well, maybe not Giants, but I have Sevilla in this one. Ryan, uh, pepper me with your questions and I'll do my best to answer them. Okay, so basically we've got an interesting matchup here, Joe. It's the Europa League Kings of Sevilla against by far the best team in Gilsenkirchen. I am here for the Schalke pot shots all day, not just the Taylor Rockwell ones. <laughs> Tell me, uh, how did Seville get to this point? <laughs> First of all, is any team as good at anything or better at, at anything than Sevilla is at winning the Europa League? I mean, it's ridiculous. They won it the again last Bayern year. Bayern Munich winning the Bundesliga. <laughs> okay. Bayern Munich Fair. winning the Bundesliga. Fair. PSG winning okay. Liga. Uh, that too. So that's a resounding yes to my question. <laughs> well, that's, that's fine. But Sevilla did win the Europa League for the, I'm checking my notes, 18, 1800th time <laughs> last correct. year. They finished second in this year's Group E in the Champions League group stage, one point behind Chelsea. They drew with Chelsea and lost to Chelsea. They beat Ren twice and they beat Krasnodar twice as well. In the league this season, they're fourth in La Liga right now behind Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid and Barcelona. But they did just beat Barcelona yesterday as we're recording today on, on Thursday. I almost said Wednesday. Man, time's tough. They beat Barcelona yesterday in the first leg of the Copa del Rey. All told, they've won eight games. They're what they've won their last eight games, excuse me, in all competitions. So they're in pretty good form right now. So they are in good form, Joe. But uh, as you mentioned, they in the group stage, they only got one point from Chelsea. They got the rest of their points from Krasnodar and Ren. Uh, are, are they slightly flattered to be at this stage at all? Or is it just that that was the hand they were dealt? I, I mean, I think it's the hand you're dealt, right? They would have been, they would have done better with results over Chelsea and they would have looked better coming into this round of 16. But the group they had realistically wasn't the strongest and they did enough to get out of it. And I think that's fortunate for them because at this point they are rounding into form and looking like a team that can really give Borussia Dortmund a lot of trouble next week. Well, let's talk about that then. What's, what's, their, what's their playing style? What does uh, Juden Lopetegui do for them? And they, they've got that sort of good combo of Lopetegui, who's you know a pretty decent manager, uh, was national team manager for five minutes or so. And um, Monchi, the sporting director, very famously there too, so building that squad. Lopetegui wants to pass, he wants to pass, and he wants to pass some more. He likes the Sevilla team to keep the ball, move it around, play out of the back, and then break you down in the attacking half. They average the second most possession in La Liga and the sixth most of any team in Europe's top five leagues. So they really do like to keep possession. And they typically do that out of a 4-3-3 shape that shifts into a 3-4-3 in buildup or, or even sometimes higher up the field in possession. So Lopetegui will have one of his central midfielders drop deep 
between the center backs or next to the center backs and form that back three. And then that's the shape they'll attack out of. They'll push their wing backs high. They'll tuck their wingers inside. Or if it's Papu Gomez, more on him later, he'll drop, Papu Gomez will drop deeper almost into midfield as well. So they've got a lot of fluidity going in possession. But for all of that fluidity and all of their possession, they're not actually a great team on the ball. They haven't created an excessive amount of chances this year. They're sixth in La Liga in terms of expected goals and sixth in in terms of goals scored as well. But I think as Papu Gomez is in this team, that's going to change more and more kind of from this point forward. Right. That was going to be my question if Papu Gomez is going to shake things up a little bit, a relatively recent arrival as he is. And who who are the sort of the big the big players we should look out for here? Obviously, there's a few uh, decent names that we'll know. Uh, even Rakitic being probably the main one um, who was, uh, I believe, brought through by Monchi, the aforementioned sporting director. Um, uh, how, how's that front line going to be looking in this game, Joe? I do want to start with Papu Gomez, who I think will start on the left wing of a 4-3-3. It could be a 4-2-3-1 from Sevilla, but it's fluid, and I'm not sure it matters a whole lot, at least in possession, because it's going to change. I've got a little Papu Gomez stat. It's a really small sample size, but since he came over from Atalanta, Sevilla have scored four goals in his just over 100 minutes that Gomez has played on the field. He's had, I think, one start in a couple bench appearances or something you know, to that effect. But Papu Gomez is already changing how this team plays. So I expect he's going to start on the left. And then their number nine is another big player for them. It's Yosef N. Nezri, who is their, their leading goal scorer. He scored 13 this year. He likes to hang out in the box and play off the back shoulder of a defender. He's good at finishing with his left. He can also get up and score goals with his head. He's about six foot two, I believe. So he's a promising goal scorer for them. He's been their regular starter as a number nine. So listeners, when you're watching Sevilla in this game, and, and certainly for the three of us, I'm going to have my eye on Enesri and uh, Papu Gomez on that front line. I really feel like we need to go back to the days of the numbers just being assigned based on position, because I think uh, Enesri wears number 15, and that's unacceptable for a number nine to wear number 15. <laughs> I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Didn't kind of Milan start that nonsense by giving Ronaldinho like 99 or something? <laughs> they, they kind of ruined I it love, for everybody. I love that. when they do random stuff like like uh, Ford wearing 18 because 1 plus 8 equals 9. That's an interesting That's approach it. to it. Yeah. <laughs> the way they have to appease certain people. Yeah. Very good. Um, Joe, I think you, you touched on the defensive line. Now, noticing that Seville have had um, six clean sheets in a row. Can we expect some, a similar level of fortitude here? Obviously, Dortmund, one of their key strengths is that they've got um, some very good attacking players. Sevilla have been very good defensively this season. They've given up the second fewest goals and the fourth fewest expected goals in La Liga this year. Uh, and they typically play out of a 4-1-4-1 defensive block or a 4-2-3-1. It depends on the game. It depends on the moment. But what's interesting about Sevilla, I talked about it with Barcelona yesterday, Sevilla don't really press a lot. Most of the big teams, actually, I was looking at the numbers, most of the big teams in Spain aren't pressing a whole lot this year, and Sevilla definitely fall into that category. After they lose the ball, they'll counter-press like a lot of teams in Europe will do. They have better rest defense, I defined that term on yesterday's show. They have better, better structure when they lose the ball than Barcelona do, but they still aren't a super active, hyperactive pressing team. They'll fall back into their defensive block and try to absorb pressure not, it's like a very, very, very light reduced version of what Atletico Madrid tried to do under Diego Simeone. Sevilla is not nearly as good at doing that as Atleti is, but it's a similar idea of them. They'll drop back into their shape and then they'll try to absorb pressure, win the ball, and then possess all over again. So, Joe, a question here from uh, listener Randy Morgan, who asks about Papu Gomez. We covered that, but also asks about the centre-backs and uh, Kunde in this game and how France have so many good young centre-backs just in the games that we're talking about over these last few days. What's, what's the secret in France? Oh, man. I don't know what the secret is in France. Just really strong soccer culture, really good development, really good youth coaching. Okay, so maybe maybe those aren't secrets, but that's my best guess. But Conde is so good. He's 22 years old. I I was not incredibly familiar with him prior to digging in and watching film and looking at the stats, but he is unreal. The way he helps Sevilla, not just in defense, because he has the ability to cover ground in behind their line if they step forward and are playing with a higher line in possession, but he can also stride forward with the ball when they have it. So he can move forward into the attack because of what Lopetegui does with the central midfielder. So Lopetegui, as I said just a few minutes ago, will drop one of those central midfielders in between or or somewhere in between or near those center backs, which then frees up Conde to drive into the attack 
get forward, beat a player, or just create a numerical advantage in midfield and then make things happen for Sevilla. Conde just scored a goal, an awesome goal against Barcelona yesterday in that Sevilla win, driving the ball forward after he he combined a little bit in the attack, beating a defender at the edge of the box and then finishing. So Conde is the real deal as far as I can tell. And I don't think he's going to be at Sevilla for a whole lot longer. Uh-huh. I sh- I should have done the uh, the research on this before we started recording, but I'm assuming one of you, hoping one of you is more informed than I. With Pablo Gomez having played for Atalanta in the Champions League, the new rules allow him to play for Sevilla, right? He can play in this fixture. He doesn't have to sit out because he's already played in the Champions League this season. Is that correct? I've seen nothing to to dissuade okay. me from the fact that he will be able to okay. play. That's That is a really great question, but I think that rule change does allow him to get on the field for Sevilla. Which does make more sense because it like once you sign the player, it feels like they should be allowed uh, unless they're signing for, you know, like a team that they've already played against or something like that. Yeah, you don't want them like throwing games or anything like that. But otherwise, I feel confident with Papu Gomez being in there. All right. Well, that's uh, any, any more for any more on Sevilla, Joe. That was an excellent detailed Cliff Notes analysis of, uh, of our Spanish friends there. Anything else on that team? Once Taylor goes through Dortmund, he and I can go back and forth because I have some thoughts on different tactical elements that could help decide this game. But for now, that's that's great for me, right? Yeah, Joe, I was going to ask you if there were any like particular vulnerabilities that you spotted or anything that you think could be advantageous to Dortmund. Would you rather hold off until we've talked a little bit about Dortmund? I tell you what, guys, why don't we why don't we tease it? We're going to we're going to be uh, talking about Dortmund and that in just a moment after these messages. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And we are back. We are talking Sevilla Dortmund happening next Wednesday in the Champions League. Or this coming Wednesday, I should say. Let's talk about Dortmund, shall we, Tete? Tell us a little bit about them. How did they get to this point? What they all about? Do some talking, Taylor. I shall do my best. I tweeted out earlier that they have sort of hurt my head with all the research I've been doing on Dortmund. Uh, they did top their group with 13 points. They won it pretty comfortably, uh, very much ahead of Zenit, St. Petersburg, and uh, Club Bruges. They dropped their opener away to Lazio 3-1, to but then they won their next three, and they ended up, I think, drawing with Lazio at home. So, top of the group, uh, Erling Haaland is the joint top scorer in the Champions League right now, tied on six goals with Neymar, Morata, and Rashford. One of those, maybe both two of those, less likely to catch him anytime soon. Worth noting, <laughs> Dortmund scored 12 in the entirety of their Champions League campaign so far, so 50% of their goals are coming from Erling Haaland, which is maybe not that surprising. Not that surprising at all. They do have some pretty good weapons up front, do they? Do they not, Dortmund? They do. The question is, how do you connect with those and make them effective, which is... A big problem that they've been dealing with, uh, Aiden Terzic, since he came in and took over, has been trying to figure out a system and format that gets the best out of the team and is pretty much struggling to make that happen. I was sort of of the opinion that once you get rid of Lucien Favre, that he was almost like an, an inhibiting obstacle to the way Dortmund wanted to play. Get him out of the way. Terzic is going to like open things up, make it more fun. It's been a little bit the opposite. I think he's really struggling with how to have a compact and organized defense that then allows you to effectively and quickly transition into into attack. In the end, what keeps happening with Dortmund or has been happening lately is that all of their attackers, attackers get funneled into the middle and you end up in a very strange like 2-2-6 formation where all of their attackers are central. And that doesn't really lend itself to a variety of attacks. Yeah, so... Dortmund kind of do confuse me a little bit mm-hmm. at the moment, Tate. As you say, you've got such so many really strong, heavily talented players in this team. You've got you know, Haaland, Sancho, Reyna, Bellingham, all really good English players they've got. They're all born in England and <laughs> very English and uh, very talented. Um, but but just it's, it seems like they're less than the sum of their parts. And not just, uh, and not, you know, Turgic's have been there for, in there for two months, but it seems that things haven't quite turned around in the way 
her fans would yeah. have expected. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the weekend review, uh, but Raphael Honigstein has a really good piece uh, for The Athletic right now, kind of going over the basics of what's happening with, with Dortmund. And the key point of it is that there's there was maybe an assumption that in similar to how Hansi Flick came in and turned around Bayern and got everybody playing and it was fun again and then they started winning – People maybe thought that might happen with Terzic. I was one of those people. Uh, but to reiterate, there's a ruthlessness to Bayern, Mu- Bayern Munich, and there are proven veterans that demand certain performances. You really don't have either of those with Dortmund. Those have been, in fact, the two big knocks against them, is that you don't have consistent veteran leadership, maybe aside from Mats Hummels, and you don't have that ruthlessness to stay competitive, to do what you have to do to stay uh, level or ahead of Bayern Munich. And so with that has led to, I think, a decent amount of uncertainty about how they want to play, about how they create their chances. Dortmund, in my mind, are this really free-flowing attackers all over the place, quick combinations, and then they they find a way to score. Of late, uh, against Freiburg, they had 68% of possession. That would be the fifth time they've had the majority of possession and lost this season. And that's about how they're going right now. It's lots of possession, not a lot of creativity. And I think where Terzic is, is trying to figure out how to put together a team that has more stability, but also allows for more attacking creativity. So with recent form and the way the team is playing, Tate, it seems like they're not taking advantage of this group of players necessarily. And there's a sense, I think, that the band might be broken up soon. There's a, we have a question from listener Matt Coughlin who kind of asks, how long before they sell Haaland and Sancho? We've, we've heard rumours about Haaland and Manchester City and Sancho with, uh, with the other Manchester team that you have an affection for. <laughs> um, so is, is there a sense that you know, this, this team could look quite different next year? And maybe, maybe even that's a good thing. But for, for now, they need to make the most of this group while they've got it. Um, I mean, so I will say first off that I, I saw a lot of those reports and a lot of them seem to be coming from England, especially the ones that were saying those three English players you mentioned previously might all go back to England. So I do think there's an element of here's this big German club. We know there's a bunch of players in there. We, we know we'll get some clicks if we have Holland and Sancho. So we're going to go and try to kind of promote that one a little bit. Uh, and yes, I'm going with your uh, conceit that Erling Holland is English. Uh, so I think but like there is the issue of money. Uh, don't are losing money. I think they posted 25 million euro losses for the first half of the season. That's probably not going to turn around. So how do you finance things going forward where they do need a decent amount of investment? Probably does mean one or a couple players will be on their way. There does seem to be like an, an idea of it being a foregone conclusion that it will be Jaden Sancho, and maybe it, well, it could well be. They're probably going to get more money for Erling Holland right now. I don't know if they can afford to part with him. So it does bring about the immediacy of the situation of you've got to try to fight a way to stay in the Champions League to make these guys happy and to make the system work. And that's where we run into the problem of Terzic again, is that if he can't do that, uh, again, to re- reiterate what I said on the weekend review, there, I, the consensus opinion is they're waiting for Marco Rosa to be done with Bruzzi Munch and Gladbach at the end of the season. Until then, you have to have an interim manager. And if you sack your interim manager right now, you're like just appointing another one who you're giving a few months to turn things around and it shows a lot of instability. So you can't really make any changes now. And the way, like the analogy I went with was sort of, it's like if you have a triage situation in the hospital and, and a bunch of people need treatment and you're trying to evaluate the situation, but you have no uh, attending physicians or no like senior people there to tell you what to do. So it's lots of different possibilities and options, but it doesn't seem like there's long-term planning that will allow those options to come together in a cohesive and successful way. So that's interesting because one of the things I'd note about this matchup, Tete, is mm. like I mentioned the sporting director, Monchi, and we've got, I'd say, arguably two of the most prominent sporting directors in Europe here with Mikhail Zork at, um, at Dortmund as well. You'd think with those kind of philosophies that those two would instill, or at least the, the playing staff that they would instill, that we'd have more, uh, I, yeah. I suppose we're saying Sevilla got, are doing better with their philosophy at the moment. Yeah, I think Dortmund are probably taking a bigger hit from coronavirus. That's just my guess, because I don't, I, this is not to say that they have been poorly run. I think there have been long questions about Lucien Favre and if he's the right manager. I think there have been positions that haven't been sort of like solidly replaced or refilled because they've had so much talent elsewhere on the field. They haven't really had to. And now some of that is coming home to roost. But yeah, I think, I think you can't overlook the financial aspect and the financial impact of coronavirus and all the games being behind closed doors and what that means both for performance and the amount of income that they have. Not saying it hasn't impacted Sevilla because it certainly has. I just think Sevilla have also done a good job of sort of reinforcing with cheaper options like what they paid for Papu Gomez. 
So, so where are the key battles going to be in this game, gents? I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with you, Taylor. I mean, you mentioned that um, Dortmund don't necessarily play with a great deal of width, but they do have some good wide Certainly. players. Yeah, so I haven't even really talked about the formations or anything. I apologize, because yeah. I'm still trying to get my head around Dortmund in general. But basically, under Terzic, they've gone with uh, roughly a 4-2-3-1 shape. But it becomes like a 3-2-4-1 when they're in possession, when they're attacking. Uh, this past weekend, it was Emre Jean playing as a right back, but basically becoming a right center back. That allows Rafael Guerrero to push up, uh, and you have more attacking players there. What then happens, though, is those fullbacks advancing means, or at least on Guerrero's side, him advancing means that Jaden Sancho goes central. Gio Reyna tends to go central because when they do have a more attacking right back, that then ha- allows for overlaps. Marco Royce stays central. Erling Haaland stays central. You have two holding midfielders who aren't, at least this past weekend, the best in terms of creating chances, and that's where that issue comes in of lots of players through the middle, not a lot of attack out wide. And so I'll be really interested to see this weekend if Terzic sticks with this again, if we see Emre Jean at right back, if we see sort of two not even consistent because it was Julian Brandt who was then subbed out uh, at halftime for Jude Bellingham. Like, I, I want to know if it's Emre Jan or right back. I want to know who are the two central midfielders. And I think that will give us an idea towards how Terzic is trying to evolve this team to make them more connective through the middle. Do you have thoughts on that, Joe? What's going to be happening with Dortmund here? Taylor, you're talking about those wide players and how they often play more central. And you're spot on. From everything I've seen of Dortmund this year, it's often Jaden Sancho or Julian Brandt or Gio Reyna tucking inside with those fullbacks overlapping. And especially with Reyna, that's his best spot, as far as I can tell, is when he's tucked into the half space or even more into the middle of the field and he can create and get on the ball and do things from there. I think for Dortmund, it's going to be such an interesting balance because of how uh, of how Sevilla's personnel might shape up in this game. With Papu Gomez, I've said his name so much in this preview, but he's he's so important to Sevilla on both sides of the ball in a positive way when they have the ball, but in a little bit of a negative way when Sevilla are back defending. If Gomez is starting, he's probably going to be playing the left wing and, and responsible for defending the left side of midfield, whether that's out of a 4-1-4-1 defensive block or more of a 4-2-3-1-4-4-2 defensive block. Gomez has been so far for Sevilla defending as a left midfielder. And and I use the term defending generously because he's not really there to defend and he knows that. And so I think if Dortmund attack down their right side, which has most often been Reyna or Julian Brandt this year, if they attack down their right side, Sevilla's left side, and just, just try to overload Sevilla's defense on that side and overload Papu Gomez... I don't think Gomez is going to provide enough defensive cover to really help out his fullback on that left side. And I think Dortmund could find a lot of joy down their right side, Sevilla's left side in this game. That would be really interesting because that would then require a little bit of reconfiguration because, as I said, like Emery Jean tends to be the one who becomes the right center back as opposed to bombing down the wing. So that would require them, I think, to change it around or look at other options and then like try to adjust, which would probably mean uh, Mateo Mori comes in. He is more attacking, but then is more of a defensive issue. Joe, one thing you said, though, that I think for Dortmund fans, I will give you a reason for optimism, and Joe has sort of already given it to you. In the loss this weekend to Freiburg, both of the Freiburg goals, especially the first one, are Dortmund under pressure when trying to build out of the back. And uh, Freiburg essentially pushed four forward. It was almost a four, two, four and Dortmund just could not find a way out. They ended up try- trying to like ping balls into the feet of Sancho and Reyna. Uh, I think for the first goal, Reyna tries to go with like a little flick on ball. Cause that's all he can do. It gets intercepted. Freiburg come right back down and score. And I think Dortmund for their build out problems and not having midfielders who can create and sort of find inspired uh, splitting passes to open up defenses, if they're under pressure, I think that immediately puts them into a vulnerable position that I think they're not comfortable in. If Sevilla are going to sit off and let Dortmund have some time to build out, I think that is much to Dortmund's advantage because with a little bit more time, I think they can pick their options more clearly and get into better attacking positions further up the field as opposed to trying to build out and, and inevitably hitting long and hoping. I don't disagree. I do think, though, at the end of that Freiburg game, Dortmund were down two goals and they got one in the 76th minute. But but they were responsible for breaking down a lower defensive block, and they couldn't. And that's not that's not unusual, right? It's really hard to break down a lower defensive shape. 
So I see what you're saying, Taylor, in in saying that Sevilla, because they don't press as much, that gives Dortmund more time on the ball. But it's a double-edged sword <laughs> a little bit. Because then Dortmund with more time on the ball are in trouble themselves. Exactly. Is that a good thing? <laughs> Do you want that? And that's going to be the story yeah. for both sides of this game. I yeah. think the biggest battle and the main overarching battle is who's going to have the ball and where are they going to have it? Both teams want it. Both teams play with it on a regular basis. Dortmund have a really high possession percentage in the Bundesliga. Sevilla the same in La Liga. They both want to have the ball and break the other team down. But where is that going to be happening? Where is the the defensive line of confrontation going to be? And then how effective are these two teams going to be in possession? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to be watching to try to figure it out next week. No, I think you make, we inf- you make a really good point there, Joe. Sorry, Ryan. Uh, just because you're right that like once they get into the attack... And if they're playing against a, a defensive team who are now a little bit more bunkered or just have those lines that are hard to break through, that is where you start to have the players drift central. And even Rafael Guerrero ends up central. And that does leave them vulnerable to counterattack. I, I think where I am with Dortmund is just that, like, but at least they're not con- conceding immediately. <laughs> like, at least they'll be able to move the ball up the field. Whereas with Freiburg, those goals were just sort of they couldn't even get out of their own half, which is not a thing you usually would think of Dortmund. Yeah, that's fair. In terms of both teams wanting the ball, Joe, and and the possession question, is that affected at all by the fact that this is the first leg of a knockout round? It's in southern Spain, this game, and uh, as as, uh, as Taylor mentioned, like Seville could do that thing with the four two four, like we saw with Freiburg. Is there, is there do the circumstances change that question a little bit? I don't think so, to be honest with you, Ryan. I think both of these teams, to their core, want to have the ball, and that they're probably not going to change that style, that offensive style. You know, regardless of the circumstances, they're going to keep with it. And then the question just becomes in this game, who's going to have more of it and who's going to use it to their advantage? I think I think I think, Ryan, with that question, you set it up in my mind that I, I think this is either going to be a dull first 45 minutes of both teams not wanting to make any mistakes early, not give up any sort of advantage they might have. But also because of the way they're both set up to play, when you have two teams doing similar-ish things or playing into each other's strengths, it sometimes cancels out. So I could see this being nil-nil at half. I could also see this being Dortmund having more of the problems um, I've been talking about, aren't able to complete as many passes, aren't able to get into the rhythm, and Sevilla are up maybe one nil in that first half, and it maybe finishes that way. Those would be the way, that'd be the way I kind of see this one going, and with that said, we may end up getting like a 3-2 now, because I've jinxed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always the way, isn't it? But I think I think you're quite right there. It feels to me, Tay-Tay, like this, they're relatively even matched, rel- evenly matched in this game, but despite the form going into it and it could be kind of one of those deadlock kind of games which is the downside to the uh the two-legged strategy uh, of the champions league but then we just get a better second leg once the teams have figured each other out and they try to try different things and adjust a little bit i don't know how much experimentation there will be but i think the game against hoffenheim this weekend for dortmund will give us a good indicator as to maybe some of the things they're sticking with and some of the things they're if not abandoning entirely, then adjusting to put themselves in a stronger position. I'm so excited for these games, guys. I'm so excited. I almost can't even contain the smile just because there's so many, so many really interesting things that could happen in these games. The game could flow in so many different ways. Can it just be next week already or, or do we have to wait? <laughs> I'd be fine. Unfortunately, we we uh, we don't have any control on that issue, Joe. But uh, we're we're very much looking forward to it. Is there anything more, Joe? You want to say on this? Uh, how you think the rhythms of this game are going to shake out? I don't know how the rhythms are going to shake out. I do have one very specific prediction, if you'll indulge me. It is that I will tweet about Conde, 22-year-old French center back for Sevilla. He plays on the right side of their back line, or the right side of their center back pairing. I will tweet about Conde at least twice during this game. Oh, are we talking like haircuts or what what are you doing? (laughs) Probably more like, wow, he's really good or he just did this awesome thing and I might try to throw in a video that doesn't get copyrighted, that sort of thing. (laughs) Center backs are weird like that, that if you're not actively paying attention to the center backs it takes like Virgil van Dyke stand standout level of performance to be like oh that center back's really impressive but once you're focused on them and you notice a few things they do really really well you start noticing those all the time and it does become really fun to be like oh he did that thing again oh he stepped in and intercepted without leaving his feet and he did that three more times right away he's very good I I know what you mean Joe it's beautiful yeah it is beautiful well some, sometimes with a center back it's like oh he didn't mess up I'm thinking just John Stones <laughs> Speaking of mess ups, I, I I will continue to be slightly negative here. Not even negative, just sort of I think realistic for what Dortmund are, where they are right now. I think to Joe's point about like highlight reels, 
there's a chance that the highlight reel for Reyna is going to be more of a low light reel because I think he is being put in positions that if he is wide on the touchline and he receives the ball, it tends to be a panicky, like driven ball at his feet because there's nothing else on and he's standing on the touchline with a defender on him. I won't be surprised if his statistics aren't as good, at least in that first half, as he's finding his footing in Dortmund or trying to figure things out and trying to get used to Sevilla. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope he ends up with a goal and an assist or something like that, but I think he is going to be in some unfavorable positions. So just saying that for American fans who watch him, maybe it's the first time they've watched him in a while and think like, he was good, right? Why isn't he good anymore? It's not entirely him. It's a lot the system and Dortmund figuring things out. With those tempered expectations, he's going to get three assists. Probably. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I really want Dortmund to be good. And, and Ryan, like, again, to your earlier point, they feel like a team that are well run and have a good plan. It's just right now, there are lots of little things wrong and they cannot be immediately fixed because of the managerial situation. So it just compounds everything. And if you don't have anything to really hang your hat on as being like, well, that we know is going to be very good. Like maybe it's Erling Haaland, but if he's not getting service, it's just a frustrating situation. And I would like this game to be both of these teams at their peak. I'm just not sure we're going to get that. If this were the Dortmund movie, this would be the point where they turn things around and put on their, their Champions League campaign and, and, and go all the way to the final. Yeah. Is, is, there some, is there some parallels with Chelsea when they won it and they were sort of in the sixth, this seventh position in the league, not doing too well domestically and then uh, had, a, had a temporary manager who managed to take them all the way? I mean, like, I would like, again, I would like for that to be the case. I think that goes back to the idea of like Lucien Favre had this team shackled and now the shackles are off and they're able to do some things and everybody's playing the way they want to be playing with to my mind that Chelsea team was a little bit like we're going back to what makes sense to us what we've done successfully in the past with Dortmund I think they're trying to do that I think a major issue is that uh, the right back they're likely to be playing is Emre Jean and not Atraf Hakimi and I think there are those types of problems that make it hard for them to just go back to what was working previously Excellent stuff, gents. I think we've covered this very thoroughly. Tete, any more in this game before we move on? I think I said a lot. Joe? I'm good. Let's go into Porto Juventus right after these important commercial messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back. We are talking Champions League. It is back next week or in the coming days. I can wait. We can wait as a collective. <laughs> Porto against Juventus. I went Scottish there for a second. You I did. thought I was with Graham. Did you notice that? I like <laughs> Porto against Juventus is what we're up to now. Uh, who's taking Porto? Is it you, Joseph? Porto is all mine, Mr. Bailey. Let's do it. What? Tell, tell me about Porto. I actually feel like that makes it sound like I'm taking over Porto. That would be cool, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that because it doesn't feel like the right thing to do. But I mean, <laughs> if the opportunity ever opens up and they are looking for a dictator, you know, you know where to find me. No, Porto uh, finished second in. <laughs> I group like that C. Joe jumped straight from coach to dictator. <laughs> like, there's no yeah, in between there. Say, maybe mayor. But he went straight to dictator, <laughs> right? No, God. yeah, all right, zero to one hundred, zero to one hundred, <laughs> guys. I'm not messing around here. Porto finished second in Group C too much. in. In the group stage, led at times by their captain, Pepe, who is still uh, kicking after all this time. He is old and he is still playing a lot for Porto. They, in that group stage, lost to Man City once and drew with them once. They beat Olympiacos twice and beat Marseille twice. So again, they were able to kind of beat the the second tier teams in that group and then escape along with Manchester City. Uh, under the In the league this season, excuse me, they are second in the Primera Liga, eight points behind Sporting. They're undefeated in that Portuguese first division since the new year. And all this is under manager Sergio Conceição, and they've had a pretty strong campaign so far. Conceição, thank you. I was about to ask on that one. Uh, <laughs> now, now uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about them in terms of, are they 
a sleeping giant of sorts. They, they were a pot one team. They were technically the top team in the group that had Man City in it. But also at the same time, this is a team that have lost a few players. We've got Alex Tellis, who's lost. We've got Fabio Silva going to Wolves, uh, uh, Danilo Pereira going to PSG. Is, is, is it, is it a, a team in transition at all? It does feel like that a little bit, just because of the players you've mentioned who have left recently. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a couple more players leave in the not-too-distant future. I don't think Porto is a sleeping giant in this one. I think they'll probably be an underdog in every game they play if they make it past this first round of the knockout round, this round of 16. They, in, in the group stage, I should say, they played a 4-4-2 at times. They played other shapes at times. But when they came up against Manchester City, they shifted and played with five at the back. And I do mean five at the back, not three at the back. It was five, sometimes six players along that defensive line designed to try to contain Manchester City. And they've done that. That, that kind of goes against the normal style that Conceição wants to play. He wants them to keep a little bit of the ball and play out of a 4-4-2. That's been their main formation in the league this season. But I'll be very surprised if we see that 4-4-2 against Juventus, unless Conceição thinks that they can really go toe-to-toe against Andrea Pirlo and Juve. But I just don't think that's going to be the case. So Conceição had a lot of his playing career in Italy. Do you think that gives him an advantage at all in this game and it may, might affect how he does things? I, I think his Scout subscription probably gives him a little bit more advantage <laughs> than his playing time in Italy. But, I mean, it doesn't hurt to have cultural fam- familiarity with the teams that you're coming up against. I think, yeah. I think, though, mostly it will be his understanding of how Juve want to play tactically, how they want to move the ball in possession, which, Taylor, you and I have talked about a good bit on our Tuesday shows, our American Abroad mm-hmm. roundups. We've done that a lot, and so... I'm hoping that listeners have a decent idea of how Juve play, but I won't steal your thunder for later on. I appreciate that, Mr. Dictator. No one wants to steal Taylor's <laughs> thunder. No one wants to do that. Now, a, a question here from Shreyas Romani, who says he hasn't really watched Porto much of late. Which of their players should Wolves fans be eager to see in their squad in one to two seasons? Is this a Wolves preview? It's not a Wolves preview, but when it's Portugal-related, it is a Wolves preview, and we all yes. know it. They have uh, They have a few different players that I think could be in conversation for that move. Maybe the biggest one is Tecatito Corona, Mexican international. He plays on the right wing for them in a 4-4-2, or he can play as a right wing back in that back three, back five shape that I'm expecting to see from Porto and from Conceição in this matchup against Juventus. Corona's a great dribbler. He he uh, he clowns Serginho Dest in that friendly back in 2019 that Mexico beat the U.S. in 3 to nothing. That moment really sticks out in my mind. I don't think it will ever fade from my memory He's a great, great offensive player. He's got a lot of skill on the ball, some good speed, and that versatility as well. He's the guy that I think is probably best suited for that future move to Wolves, especially given how they play under Nuno with with sometimes using that wing-back position. Okay, so that's a player who might be sold for twice as much as he's worth giving George Mendes a nice uh, bit, bit of cash as well. well. We'll keep that in mind. Joe, uh, with, with this Porto squad, I, I am similar to Shreyas, like, have not been so focused on them, but they do seem to be less what I expected in terms of a lot of 21 and 22 year olds. Like, yeah, they have, uh, Malang Sar, for example, the left back, I think on loan from Chelsea, but like the spine of that team with Taremi and Morega and their midfielders, it all seems to be like 28 and 29 year olds. Is that a sign that like, as far as you understand, is that a sign that, like, they don't have as many youngsters coming through, or is this just sort of like they found the players who fit the system and can perform capably, and it doesn't really matter who, like, what their age might be? I would love to lie and say that I have a great okay. understanding of Porto's academy, but I, yeah. I don't. And so all I know is looking at this first team right now, Taylor, you're spot on. They're spine. They're forwards. They're central midfielders. Uh, Mateus Uribe, a Colombian international, is a big player in central midfield for them. He's able to cover ground defensively and shield that back line. But their spine is generally more mature, older players. I mean, they have they have guys along that spine who have played a lot of professional games and who have experience. And I think that serves them actually really well in the Champions League, or it will serve them against Juventus yeah. because of what they're going to need to do. The way I envision this game playing out, I guess to speed forward a little bit, is I envision Juventus having a lot of the ball and Porto having very little of the ball. Could I be wrong? Sure, it's happened before. But that's what seems most likely to me. And if I'm a coach leading a team that needs to sit back and defend very disciplined and and move efficiently in in defense, I want guys who've had to do that before. I want guys who did that earlier this year against Manchester City. I want guys who've done it in the Champions League and in in big international games in the past. And Porto have have that. Conceição has that. 
And I think that could end up actually playing right into how they want to play in this game. That makes a lot of sense to me because that's like the the opposite situation of what I was just saying with Dortmund is you do want that kind of consistency there. You don't want a 19 year old who's going to be overawed by Juve and everything they represent in the knockout round. You want Pepe who has pretty much literally seen and done everything. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. On that note, Joe, uh, as a neutral watching uh, the Champions League, there's only one team I want to win, and that's Team Chaos. And I'm looking at <laughs> Porto and they, their most recent outing against uh, against yeah. Braga. <laughs> two, two, two red cards uh, and a night and a hundred and second minute equalizer for Sporting Braga. Can we expect some fun and games in this one from Porto? <laughs> <laughs> I I I love to say yes because you've got Tecatito who is very often going to get up to some mischief on that right side and you've got Pepe who is just a total wild card. Maybe he's not a wild card because we kind of know what he's going to bring, but we know he's going to bring the wild card. That's, so that's, I like just, that's a real philosophical yeah, debate. Yes, I like that a lot. <laughs> Can one be a wild card if one is assumed to be wild? I don't know. I don't I don't know. I have no idea what the answer to that question is. And so Ryan, I'd love to say yes, but every part of me is feeling like a buzzkill a little bit because I just envision this game being very predictable in Juve having the ball, Porto trying to absorb pressure, win the ball, and counterattack. And if that's your thing, this is going to be the game for you. But if it's not, I wouldn't expect a ton of antics outside of Pepe and maybe a Tecatito step over. We can but pray. We can but pray. How about um, uh, the, the, the attacking line for Porto? Can we t- hear a little more about that? The top scorer, uh, Medi Taremi, the Iranian striker, uh, is, is he going to be a key source for them? If they can get enough time on the ball, yes. Taremi and Marega is likely going to be their their front two strikers in their 4-4-2 or in maybe a a 5-3-2 or a 3-4. I mean, whatever the shape is, those guys are important attacking players for them. And they both like to stay high. They both like to get in behind the back line at times, but only once Porto has moved up the field high enough. They're not blazing fast. They're not lightning quick. And so they're not making those stretching runs in behind the back line like we might see from Holland and Dortmund. They're more, okay, we've got the ball, our team's moving up the field systematically and thoughtfully. Now we're going to get in the box, move around, and get on the ball and put the ball in the back of the net. So those players are important, and I think if they're getting involved, that bodes well for Porto, but it's not a guarantee that they will get lots of touches in this game. Okay, so we've heard about Porto. That's a really good uh, explanation of them, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, we, we know which players Wolves are likely to buy uh, this coming summer. Tete, how about Juventus? We know a little bit more about Juventus. I think the casual fan is probably fair to say. Uh, how did they get to this point in this competition, though? Uh, they're good. I'll, I'll start off there. They're a good team. They're pretty solid. Good start. Uh, good start. Top of Group G, 15 out of 18 points ahead of Barcelona, who also had 15 points. I believe they advanced on head-to-head goal difference uh, because different... Uh, are like worst goal difference overall, but still advanced top of the group. So well done to Juve. Uh, and despite like, again, similar to, like I had this idea that like, oh, maybe things aren't as good. Like things are a little bit down. And in reality, this is about as strong as they've been in a, in a little bit of time this season. And um, yeah, so what's their, what's their form mm-hmm. like at the moment then? Sure. Um, I will say that I'm, I'm parroting a little bit from Nicky Bandini, who made, uh, two of these points that basically, since their 2-0 loss to Inter, and I think that's why I'm thinking of them as being a little bit vulnerable. Ryan, we talked about that one on the weekend review. We did. Where they looked just sort of like not up to the races, pretty much outplayed comprehensively. That was January 17th, that 2-0 loss. Since then, uh, they have played six games, uh, six wins and one draw, seven games, excuse me, six wins and one draw. That draw was yesterday, uh, that sent them through to the the final, the Copa Italia final against Atalanta. But more importantly than that is the next game after that loss to Inter was the Supercoppa Italia, uh, Italiana, excuse me, where they beat Napoli 2-0. That was Pirlo's first silverware. But the point that Nicky Bandini was making that I am now regurgitating, I will own that, is essentially that, like, imagine a scenario in which in the span of three or four days, they lose that massive game to Inter, the Derby d'Italia, and then you go and lose your first opportunity for silverware in a cup final against Napoli and Gennaro Gattuso. Like, I think immediately there's pressure there because they win, because they get that silverware, and then they start turning it around. They are very consistent and very consistently good of late. And then another component to that would be the return of Giorgio Chiellini to his full fitness. And that has directly coincided with them not conceding as many goals and looking a much more strong, structured team through the middle. 
Well, yeah, and on that, when we, we looked at the game against Roma on the weekend review most recently, and I think um, Graham described them as Allegri-esque yeah. uh, in that how they sort of weren't as open, weren't as attacking, just more solid and more defensive, maybe a bit even more Mourinho-esque if you want to go that far Yeah. Um, in, in terms of how they set up. Are they quite chameleon-like in terms of how they um, they can adapt in that yeah, sense? Yeah, I would say they are. I mean, you go back to their, I think, 3-0 win over Barcelona in the Champions League. And that's with three at the back, and there's a lot of problems that Barcelona have to deal with in the way they set up defensively. And then you look at Juve now, and they have pretty pretty much entirely switched to a 4-4-2. And like a complete change, they can still go back to the back three if they need to, but I think they're very adept at changing the little things as are needed because this is my interpretation. I'm not sure this is 100% true, but this is what I feel from watching them and what I've read, is that I think Pirlo has been so focused on individual things, on little things that each player can do better. And it's a thing Joe and I have talked a lot about with Weston McKinney and how he has been developing with Juve. I think they're very much a team that is, if the ball goes there, you go there, he goes there, that person goes there. If it doesn't go there, then you go here. Like, they all seem to know all of their assignments. And what that means is that, yeah, if something isn't working, if they want to kind of go to the right back or the right wing back and attack down that right-hand side, but the opponent shifts two over there, they know how to adjust, and more importantly, the play Players know how to adjust on the fly, and I think that's a big part of why they've been so consistently good, is they can find ways to make things work when other things aren't necessarily working, and that's been the major criticism of, say, Maurizio Sarri, is that they kind of kept playing the same way over and over again, and if teams found them out, they were sort of found out, and there wasn't a lot of improvisation after that. I would say that's not the case now under Pirlo. How long until Pirlo gets found out then? <laughs> That's a great question. Because, I mean, that that is the thing. It's still such a small sample size relative to so many other managers that though you can get really excited about Andrea Pirlo, it's still halfway through the season. And if he loses three games in a row, like, am I this optimistic? <laughs> no. If we're recording this right after that Inter game, I have a lot more questions. But I think in seeing the way he has gotten his team to kind of buy into this particular style, which I said again is is basically a 4-4-2 at times transitioning into like a 2-2-6 if they need it to when they're getting into the attack. Uh, to Joe's point, I think they're going to have a lot of the ball against Porto, and I think they're going to have significant numbers committed forward. I think they tend to leave enough at the back to deal with it. That could be an issue with a lack of pace. No disrespect to Chiellini and Bonici, but I wouldn't think of them as being the fastest of players. But aside from that, I think they're going to have a lot of options, a lot of time on the ball, uh, and then it just matters what they do with it. And you mentioned the defensive line there. Obviously, uh, the, the veterans they have in the back, and that's me and the difference maker. But what about, um, is there a chance if there is some pace coming at them and uh, Delict coming in or something like that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's been, it's, it's been interesting to me that they have sort of had a, if it's not these two, it's these two sort of situation. Because if it's not Chiellini and Benucci, then it becomes Delict and uh, I forget their other fullback's name. Or is, uh, Demorel? Yes. Uh, yeah, Demorel. Thank you. Uh, it's basically, I wrote down Chiellini next to Chiellini in my notes. Good job, me. Uh, yes. And so they do seem to do a these two play together or these two play together. We could see him try to change that up, uh, him being Pirlo to get get them a little bit more pace. But I think for what Chiellini and Bonucci offer in terms of just obviously their reputation is a big part of it. But then Juve, when they do get into their defensive setup, are very compact and narrow with a two banks of four and a four four two, and they are okay with the ball being out wide. They're okay with crosses coming in because they back Chiellini and Benucci to handle those. And I think that might be more of the priority than that pace. You never know. We could see Delict, but uh, if you're going with the sort of team that brung you, it seems like those two center backs are going to be the way to go. Mm. Sounds like a nicked for Delict. Mm, <laughs> I mean, a, again, given given tradition, now that I've said that, it will be Delict starting in both <laughs> positions somehow. <laughs> it's going to be the Delict eleven. I like <laughs> to hear that. Yeah. Now, um, some of the attacking weapons. Let's talk about those. Sure. Obviously, we know they've got um, twenty twenty six World Cup winner Weston McKenney, of course, and some guy called Cristiano Ronaldo, well said, who's never won Who? a World Cup. Uh, past, future, or present. <laughs> this is true. Uh, they do have Ronaldo, who has continued his uh, transition into just a straight-up forward. Uh, he, in that 4-4-2, is usually partnering Alvaro Morata, and they have proven themselves to be more than a little effective when it comes to that counterattack. When Juve do drop into those two banks of four, you tend to have Morata staying very central. You tend to have Ronaldo drifting out to the left wing, and then it will be long ball out, clearance to Morata. He knocks it down for one of those midfielders who then pings it through for Ronaldo, and away we go. And they're very good 
with those sort of rotations and patterns of play. Ronaldo, we know can score goals. We know is pretty ruthless in front of goals and has that like similar to Messi has that ability to just spot those angles and know exactly where he needs to be to get the shot off that the goalkeeper can't see, but the defender can't quite get to. And I do think there's a chance he is the big difference maker in this game. If Porto are really defensively solid and resolute, I I wouldn't be surprised if we see Ronaldo pulling off something to make something happen. So I mentioned yesterday that this is Diva Corrigi's competition, the Champions League, but in, in reality, it's probably Ronaldo's competition. We know this is the stage where he shines. We know that Juventus threw all that Fiat Chrysler money at him to, to get him here, to get into this competition. Is this where he starts, um, you know, I'm not saying he's not been stepping up lately, and he certainly was impressive at the weekend. Mm. Is this is this where he's, he's going to start shining again in the knockout stages? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Ronaldo is always a, a big game player. I think he's been doing plenty for Juve. I think that kind of speaks to how good they are and the depth they do have. Like, I haven't even mentioned Paulo Dybala, for example. I haven't even mentioned yeah. Artur. Uh, like, they've got lots and lots of world-class players, but... There is that Ronaldo thing of wanting the spotlight, even like we joked about it on the weekend where there was the own goal and you could see for a minute he was like, can I claim this? Can I make this my goal? Like he see, he still has that for sure. And I think it is that that will to win the the Tom Brady, Michael Jordan thing of like he wants the ball in that moment. He wants to make something happen. And it's not necessarily like I don't have faith in my teammates. It's just I have supreme confidence in myself to do something in this moment, which can backfire uh, on occasion. But it can also mean that Ronaldo's score is one of those towering headers or some ridiculous free kick. So how do you think um, Juventus is going to be going into this one? Are they going to be very cautious of Porto? How, what, what do you think about this matchup, Taylor? Uh, I don't know if it's cautious. I wouldn't say it's like throwing everything, like, like just everybody get forward and make something happen. But I think we'll see a lot of movement, like player movement, which I know sounds very basic. But to go to my initial point, like I think if if there are opportunities to overload one side, a thing they do really effectively is the fullback will push up and then... The let's say if it's Weston McKinney on the right hand side or the left hand side, whichever one it might be. But if it's on the right hand side and with like one Quadrado as the right back in this situation, Quadrado tends to step up on the midfielder when uh, you've air in possession. McKinney will drift out and occupy that fullback. And that then, if he moves, pulls the fullback with him, and then it opens up a ton of space for one of those attacking runs. Or routinely, it's the far side midfielder making a diagonal run all the way across into space. So if it's Aaron Ramsey on the left, let's say, sometimes it will be like Quadrado gets the ball, plays it to McKinney, McKinney plays it back, and then it's a direct ball through into an on-running Aaron Ramsey because that space has been opened up. And I think all that is to say that's, I think, what we'll see from Juve, is a lot of like probing one side, probing another side, a player popping up here, a player popping up there and trying to create confusion with Porto, but also I think probing for where are they vulnerable? Where will they step out? Where will they drop in? How can we use that to our advantage? I think it will be a an attacking, tinkering performance from Pirlo. Attacking, tinkering performance. Joe, how, how do you think Porto are going to deal with this probing? I think Porto are going to try their best to not let that happen. I think they're going to sit sit deep, defend with a lot of numbers in the back, and and really force Juve to break them down. I think there are two big battles, two big overarching tactical things that I'm watching for in this game. Number one, how do Juve try to break down Porto's defensive block? Again, I expect Porto to be playing with five defenders, maybe a midfielder dropping into that back line at times if they feel it's necessary. And then with maybe three midfielders in front of those defenders and two forwards in front of that. It could be some variant of that. But that's the basic shape I'm expecting to see. So then if you're Juve, how do you get in there? How do you break that block down? Breaking down a low defensive block is one of the hardest things to do in soccer, if not the hardest thing to do. So they're going to have their work cut out for them in this game. Manchester City only scored only scored in one of their games against Porto on the group stage. They were held scoreless in the second time those two teams met, I believe. It could be the other way around. It doesn't matter a whole lot at this point. But, that, I mean, that speaks to my point of how difficult it can be, even for the best teams in the world, to break through a team that's going to be playing like Porto. So that's that's matchup number one. Juve's attack versus Porto's defensive block. Matchup number two, how do Porto, if they're able to win the ball, I expect they will, how do Porto try to attack from there? Can they break in behind Juve's defensive line and get out into space on the counterattack. They don't have a ton of blazing speed through the middle, as far as I can tell, but there's still going to be space to exploit. And so do they try to attack in behind? Do they play direct? Do they try to hold on to the ball a little bit more and exploit spaces in Juve's own defensive block? I want to see how that matchup's going to go in addition to Juve's attack versus Porto's defense. 
Now, I don't want to downplay this one, gents, but I'm hearing defensive block, defensive block, 4-4-2, 4-4-2, intriguing matchup. But I'm just hoping for some of these fireworks I mentioned earlier, Taylor. Yeah, I I think like that, it's it's what Joe is always very good about of saying like, this is what the formation roughly is, but it doesn't really matter. And I think that that is sort of like the case in this one that you could see a very 4-4-2 versus 4-4-2, everything cancels each other out. But I think that's where we'll see a lot of improvisation and adapting based on what the opponent is doing. So if it is Porto with that front two, do not be surprised if one of those Juve uh, fullbacks does kind of stay a little bit back and you have a back three and then one of them goes wide and one of the Juve midfielders goes central and then suddenly you have kind of a 3-3 situation where you can pass through that too. Like I think you'll see a lot of movement to try to capitalize on what the other team is doing defensively, effectively use, utilizing their defensive approach against them so that like, yeah, if you're set up to deal with a sort of like two central defenders two midfielders and that sort of square that's formed as a result if you're set up to deal with them by playing through there and nullify it but then they add two more players to that that sort of nullifies your approach itself so i think that's where we'll see a lot of adjustment and i don't think it will mean pirlo on the side screaming i don't think it will mean Conce- it'll mean conceição on the side screaming i think you'll just see those sort of like especially with juve they know how to move they know how to adjust based on what the opponent is doing to create opportunities that's my very optimistic read on juve i should say and if Juve get a goal, or or even if Porto get a goal, but more so if Juve get a goal, I think that's going to change the flow of the game. I haven't said a lot about the game flows for any of the games we previewed previously, because I don't know how they're going to go. This one I have more of a hunch on. I think if Juve can break down Porto's defensive block and get goals, that's going to have Porto come out of their shell. They're going to have to step forward a little bit more and not you know, get just beaten up in this first leg. They're going to need to do something if Juve come out and score a goal early on or even in the first half. I could be wrong and they could say, okay, we'll come back in the second leg and do it then. But if I'm Porto and I get scored on early, I'm having a real think about how I can maybe adjust and get more aggressive to try to create some chances of my own. Hmm. Just just looking at the centre-back situation, Chiellini, Benucci, and Pepe, quite uh, an average age of the centre-backs on this field, relatively high. Is it not just begging out for some some quick countering in this game. It is, right? It is looking for players to burst in behind. And I think, honestly, we could see that a bit more with Porto breaking in behind Chiellini and Benucci than we might see it with Juve breaking in behind Pepe and his partner, if we even see Pepe at all in this game. Just because I think Juve are going to push so high up because they're going to be forced to break Porto down, then that leaves space in behind. And that's why I want to see, is it Tecatito making those runs in behind? Is it one of the front two really saying, okay, I'm going to stay high and break in behind as soon as we win the ball and we're going to play long. But yeah, Ryan, I'm totally with you. This game really does feel like it's crying out for an attacking player to make those direct runs and get into that space behind the back line. I just want to be very clear that if Pepe does not play this game, uh, Porto deserves to lose 5-0. So that's my first point. Yeah, we my- <laughs> Go ahead, Joe. We boycott, right? We boycott yeah, if, if Pepe Obviously. doesn't play. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, then, Taylor, on, on that point, they should start at minus five goals because their goalkeeper, Diego Costa, wears number 99 on his shirt. There so we go. <laughs> uh, uh, unacceptable well. already. Now now we know for sure. But yeah, I, th- I think what Juve will try to do is to keep that sort of defensive square is how I'm calling it. But yeah, if it is Bonucci Chiellini, let's say it's Benson Cornartour ahead of them. They want it to be like two and two in a square. And then McKinney and whomever else, if it's Bernardeschi or, or Ramsey, they have a little bit more freedom. And I think Juve will try to block that middle to force Porto out wide. But that does then invite the idea that if they commit numbers forward and there are gaps down those wings and Porto have the pace, attack those wings, pull defenders out, open up space in the middle for a cross or maybe get around that defense and get a shot yourself. There will definitely be opportunities for Porto uh, if they're able to take them. So there we go. Porto against Juventus. We are hoping for fireworks, maybe a red card or two, maybe a crazy uh, Pepe incident. That'd be fine. Here's to, here's to hoping, here's to hoping. Any more in this game, gents? Do we want to give a prediction even? I know we're not want to do predictions too often, but Taylor, what, what do you think? If, how's this one going to shake out if you had to, uh, if you had to tell me? Uh, I, I don't think this is avoiding the question, but I'll say uh, if Juve score in the first, like, 20 minutes i think it finishes with a comfortable juve win of maybe like two or three to like two nil or three to one if it's tight through the first half i wouldn't be surprised if it finishes one to one or nil nil uh that that's my sort of read on things joe what about you 
Uh, my prediction is that Porto will score more than Juventus if by score we mean stepovers instead of goals. And all of those stepovers are going to be Tecatito Corona. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about the rules. They did change the rules when Guardiola came around that passing counted more than goals. So maybe stepovers <laughs> count more than goals now too. I'll have to check with, uh, check with the rules. And a, prof- and a professional foul doesn't count if it's Pep's team. That's the other one. They right. changed that rule too, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no professional fouls in the middle of the field do not count. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Fernandinho yeah. can stab somebody, and it's a it's a stern talking to, but not quite a yellow. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, I, I asked you yesterday to, to wrap up the show. If you had to watch one of these games live and uh, watch the other one later on, which would it be? This is Sevilla Dortmund and Porto Juventus both taking place uh, Wednesday, February seventeenth at three Eastern. Because hey, we're doing these games simultaneously. Taylor, if you had to pick one. Uh, I would probably start with Sevilla Dortmund, and then if it starts to go one way specifically, then maybe I'd switch over to uh, to Porto Juve. I think I'm in that same boat, Joe. As am I. Yeah, I hate to copy homework over here, but I'm on the same page. <laughs> so we're all going to be watching homework. Sevilla Dortmund while there's uh, four, four red cards and uh, six goals in Porto Juventus. That sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I asked. I also asked at the end of yesterday's show whether any of the four teams playing uh, on Tuesday's games uh, had a, had a shot at going uh, a shot of winning the tournament. I'll ask the same question. I suppose it's whether Juventus are going to go deep in terms of this group of teams, Joe. I I think maybe. I think they've got the best shot out of this four. But I felt like I said yesterday. Oh, I don't think any of these teams really have a shot. And if I keep saying that over and over again, we're going to run out of teams. So, sure, I'll say, yeah, Juve have a chance to make it out of this round, certainly, and even make a deeper run as the the Champions League continues. Taylor? Uh, yeah, I think Juve, obviously, a lot of strength. Uh, the question becomes, how does Pirlo manage the knockout round competition while trying to get to the top of Serie A and then stay there? I I have a like sneaky suspicion that Sevilla are fine in this game. Maybe I'm wrong, and again, Dortmund kind of find their form and destroy them. Always a possibility. But we know Sevilla, in the very beginning of the show, like they're a very good knockout team. They know how to win tournaments. Usually that tournament is the Europa League, where there isn't as much strength in the opposition. But I still think they're a team that knows how to win, and they've got a lot of very good pieces there. You get by Dortmund, I mean, that's a big, that's a big opponent you've gotten through. Obviously, it depends on who they draw next, but... I wouldn't be surprised if Sevilla made a run in this one either. Uh, but I would, if I were forced to bet, I would probably put a wager on Juve of these four teams. Ah, oh, I hope you're not forced to bet. By the way, no one wants to make you do that. But I hope not. I don't, I don't know how you're how you're feeling about this one, Ryan. Sometimes, sometimes I don't know. I'll tell you who can force you to bet, Taylor, the dictator of Porto. See, there wow. we are. <laughs> Northern Portugal's terrifying dictator Joe Lowry strikes again. Uh, I like that, Ryan. Can you make me a business card? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it does feel like a Shakespeare work. It's like the Merchant of Venice, the Dictator of, Por- of Porto. Yeah, uh, that that checks out to me. That's beautiful. <laughs> Love it. Okay, thank you very much, guys. Uh, that's uh, yeah, Sevilla Dortmund and Porto Juventus uh, Champions League. Uh, that when we've caught, sort of previewed the first tranche of Champions League games, we're going to be next week uh, dealing with the next tranche, which is Atleti Chelsea, Lazio Bayern, Atalanta Real Madrid, and Borussia Mönchengladbach Manchester City. Looking forward to that. Oh, what a cracking no- round of knockout games we got here. I'm really looking forward to that. But for now, Tete, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, my friend. And the dictator of Portugal. Thank you very much. <laughs> You got it, Ryan. 